0: On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. What happened to the spices? More importantly, what happened to my overheads this morning? (laughs) I was sitting at the computer about five to eight and Put in the memory stick, and I press delete by mistake. So you have no overheads, and neither have I this morning. The spices are one thing, overheads are quite another. I wonder if we could read, though, from 1 Corinthians 15. And while you're turning to it, I want to tell you I have a passionate love for landscape photography. And one of my favourite things to photograph is sunrise, and today we celebrate sunrise. Felt differently to S-U-N, of course. And I want to paint for you, if I can, a photograph I have in my mind of sunrise, S-O-N-R-I-S-E. But let's read from 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12. But, and I want you to put away in your mind because I can't bring it up here. That's the first but. But, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. That's the end of the first but. Now we come to the second but. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since Christ, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for well, he has put everything under his feet. Now, when we say that everything has been put under his feet, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Two buts. The first one is the butt of a ghastly Proposition the second is the butt of a glorious reality back at the end of the second world war two men were hunting in a forest in austria and came across a plane wreck and they fossicked through the plane wreck and they found an old battered suitcase and inside were 60 notebooks They kept these notebooks from the end of the Second World War, 1945, 1946, somewhere around there. They kept them until April 1983 when they persuaded the Stern magazine of Germany, S-T-E-R-N. This magazine purchased those 60 booklets because they were the diaries of the life story of Adolf Hitler written in his own handwriting. It wasn't until many years later that those diaries were examined very closely and found to be wrong. The paper was too recent to have predated 1950 even. The ink was the wrong sort of ink. The handwriting was not Adolf's handwriting. It was one of the greatest hoaxes brought on the German people just after the Second World War. These two gentlemen... One by the name of Gerd Heidemann, and the other Conrad Kujal were jailed, but no one knows what happened to the money—an astronomical money in those days—paid to these two men. A great hoax. And Paul is talking here in 1 Corinthians 15 about an even greater hoax. And he's saying, "What about those who say there is no resurrection?" In our reading this morning, it suggests the possibility of this other hoax. It is that the cross, without the authentication of the resurrection, is a proposition that goes to the very root of our salvation. The cross alone is not salvation. It is the cross plus the resurrection. And there are those who would say, you can have your crucifixes, you can have your crosses, You could sing about the old rugged cross, but don't append to it the truth of the resurrection. If we can get rid of the resurrection, the cross means nothing. And so that is why it is so important and so imperative that Paul tackles the question of those who would argue there is no resurrection. It goes right back into history. Imagine if you were a 12-year-old boy running around in Egypt with mum and dad And the day of the Passover came. And dad called you aside and said, son, we're putting blood on the two side posts and on the lintel. But son, it's not going to work. Get ready because I'm sorry, boy, you're going to die tonight. You see, the resurrection is that which adds validity and authenticity to the cross of the Lord Jesus. Let me say this with all the clarity that I can possibly muster: the crucifixion of Christ is not, by itself, underlined those two words central to the Christian faith. It is the crucifixion of Christ plus the resurrection, which is central to the Christian faith. I want to make the point that while it is a crucial aspect of our faith, the crucifixion was in vain unless Christ rose from his borrowed grave. It was the resurrection of Christ that validated his death, and the resurrection of Christ is not just a nice postscript to a ghastly story. It is pivotal to the biblical assertion that there is a heaven to gain and an eternal life to be enjoyed. If there were no resurrection... Let me put it even more plainly if I can. If there is no resurrection, the three men who hung on three crosses on the top of that rocky knoll 2,000 years ago were equally impotent if it weren't for the resurrection. Christ's death would have been no more powerful, no more essential to our Christian faith were it not for the fact that it was validated by an empty tomb and a stone that was rolled away. The resurrection is that important. I just want to touch, though, on three consequences that flow from this ghastly proposition that there is no resurrection. But there are some who argue that vociferously, strongly in our world today. And the first is the futility of faith. Paul said it quite plainly in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You can have a cross, but if you haven't got a resurrection, it's meaningless. It doesn't, it doesn't achieve anything. Your faith is futile without the resurrection. A false hope, a false dream, a false concept is futile, when that which is inevitable overtakes that which is hoped for. In my life, I've spent a lot of time looking at forecasts, particularly financial forecasts. And I was interested to read a man called Daniel Gilbert who spoke about forecasts that really don't mean anything. And he wrote this. up on the... No, it's not. <laughs> if they are right, if they are right then you are wrong to believe that a new car will make you as happy as you imagine. You are wrong to believe that a new kitchen will make you content for as long as you can imagine. You're even wrong to believe that a cheeseburger you order in a restaurant will definitely hit the spot. That's because when it comes to predictions, exactly how you will feel in the future, you will most likely be wrong. How depressing. And if you think you sit here this morning and say that I'm going to heaven and I'm going to be happy one day and the Lord will come back and all that we read about in the Bible, if we have no empty tomb, your faith is futile. It's a horrendous thing to chew over. Remember when we used to amuse our children with soap bubbles? You know, you take that little plastic thing and you dip it in the liquid and the, the film is stretched across and you puff into it and bubbles come out and the kids try and grasp them. That's what it's like if there's no empty tomb. Your faith is futile. You're grasping at bubbles, and they will mean nothing at the end of the day. The next problem is the certainty of failure. Paul goes on to say, not only is your faith futile, but those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. It means nothing. It is appropriate then that we shed tears at the grave. It is right that we tear our clothes and and get so depressed and upset. Paul writing elsewhere said, those who love Christ and who know Christ and believe Christ and believe in the cross and believe in the resurrection, they grieve but not as others who grieve. We have a different sort of a grave, a different sort of a grieving, a different sort of a going because of an empty tomb. They are lost. A horrendous word. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. I was listening to a man on the television the other day and he said something that I really really resonate with. He was speaking about an event that's coming that this world has not yet seen called the rapture of the saints. I believe in that implicitly and absolutely. And this gentleman said, I'm looking for the uppertaker, not the undertaker. So am I, all because of an empty tomb. If there is no resurrection, Paul is stretching reality. He is deluding his readers. He is propagating lies. He is propounding an unfounded hope. And if there is no resurrection, why don't we drill down into this life? For this is all we've got. Let's live in a way which we we, we can dig into the paltry. We can dig into the greedy. We can dig into the insipid and the selfish and the grasping. Just so long as we can get the best we can out of this life. Jesus said, lay not up for for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, why should we lay up treasure there? Because we're not going to get there because there's no empty tomb. Why don't we go for the very best? No, best is not the wrong word. Why don't we go for the very worst we can in this life? Push everyone else aside and get what we can out of it because there is no empty tomb. Your faith is futile. Certainty of failure and the hopelessness of the future. Paul went on to say, you are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only in this life we have hope in Christ... We are more to be pitied than all men. We all live in the future from time to time. You know what it's like as a kid, when you're told when you get to school that morning, "Uh, Max, it's your turn to see the dental nurse today. And I am living in the future for a while, and it's not a very nice future. Or or, or meeting a friend for a cup of coffee, that's different, that's great. Or, or, Or having to go to court over a speeding fine, that's not so wonderful or attending an upcoming wedding, we often and often and often we live in the future. You've got plans for this afternoon, I suspect. The anticipated moods of the future will always impact to a lesser or greater degree the moods of today. Paul is asserting here that if there is no resurrection, we've hitched our wagon to the wrong star. It's all over. There's nothing worth it. Going forward. So that's the first button. I don't want to dwell too much on that first but. No future, all is hopeless, our faith is futile. I want to switch across though to the second but. But, verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And I want to touch on three little things here. The first is what is then declared? Paul is simply stating. Christ has been raised from that air. Great, Paul, but where's your evidence? I've stood in court many times and had to give evidence. I remember the first time I was very, very nervous. I was only a young investigator at the time, and I had done an investigation of a taxpayer, and it came to court, and I had to go to court, and I, I was terrified. You know what it was? Have you, have you been in court? No. I was terrified. <laughs> And I remember getting to court that day and the solicitor acting for the IRD came out and he sat with me and encouraged me and stroked me and told me everything would be alright. And I got to court and then eventually uh, 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 the, uh, the prosecutor calls for Max Carr and I went up the front there, my legs would hardly hold me up. And I, and I stood there and he asked me Wes one question and do you know what I said? I said, yes. That's what I said. He said, I've no further questions for this, uh, for this witness. That was all I had, but I was so nervous I had to say yes in a court. It's awful to stand in court. So Paul, where's your evidence? And Normally in court you look for all sorts of evidence. You look for eyewitness evidence, fingerprint evidence, documentary evidence, scientific evidence, medical evidence, factual evidence, circumstantial evidence, etc 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 and they will go to all sorts of lengths to bring all this together so they can say guilty is charged i want to touch on two i want to touch on eyewitness evidence you read in the bible that jesus appeared to peter twice he appeared to mary magdalene he appeared to that other mary he appeared to thomas he appeared again to some of them he appeared to up 500 at once and there was a lot of people that jesus appeared to during or just after his resurrection. And I got interested in this idea of these 500. I wonder if they stood in court and had to give evidence as to what they saw. Excuse me, could you explain what you saw? Yeah, I saw Jesus. Next one. That's number one. Next, number two. What did you see? I saw Jesus. Number three. What did you see? I saw Jesus. How long would it take? A man called Lee Strobel, who's written a book, The Case for Christ, and by the way, it's on On Shine tonight at 8.05 if you want to watch it. An amazing book. Lee Strobel is a legal training. He's a he's a um, reporter, but with a legal bent. And in his book, he wrote this. This is not on the screen. Without question, the amount of testimony and corroboration of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances is staggering. He's talking now about all these people who've seen Jesus. He said it's staggering. To put it into perspective now please wake up and listen to this and get it into your head. If you were to call each one of the witnesses to a court of law to be cross-examined for just 15 minutes each, right? right? So you've got them there and you're starting it's not just yes and I'm standing down if you're cross-examined for 15 minutes what were you wearing? Did you have your spectacles on? Was it light? Was it dark? Was it day, was it night? Was it in the shadow? Was it outside? You sure it was Jesus? It wasn't just a figure of your a figment of your imagination. He said, if you cross-examined all of them for 15 minutes each, and you went around the clock without a break, it would take you from breakfast on Monday until dinner on Friday to hear them all. And after listening to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, who would possibly walk away unconvinced. So he's gone into the 500 and all the rest, divided them to quarter-hour bits, stretched them out. It would take from breakfast Monday to dinner Friday to have them all cross examination cross-examine. And who in the court would therefore say, no, nah, no, nah, it didn't happen? Fingerprint evidence. In September 1910, a man called Clarence Hiller, living in Chicago, had just finished painting the casements around the windows around his house, 1910, a long time ago. He went to bed that night, heard a a noise downstairs, went downstairs and saw one of the casements had been broken in, found a man inside, a fight ensued, and uh, what was his name, I called him, and Clarence Hiller was murdered. A knife was put into his belly and he died. The police found a guy down the road, he had a knife on his hand, he had blood on his shirt. They arrested him. He said, it wasn't me. I fell out of the bus or fell out of something. But then they went back to the house where, the, where Clarence had just been painting the casements and they found fingerprints all over the wet paint. And that's the first time in legal history that fingerprints were admitted as evidence because it was proven just before then that every one of us has a different sort of a fingerprint. So there was a fingerprint on the casement and there were five fingers that had that same fingerprint and he was convicted, and he was hung. So what's it got to do with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus? Well, there are many fingerprints throughout the Gospels as to what Christ would do. You go back into the Old Testaments, and you read time and time and time again that the Messiah coming would do this and do that and it was fulfilled. It is the fulfillment of prophecy which is the fingerprint industry. Let me give you an absolutely absurd example. Have you heard of the Rugby Almanac? Anybody heard of the Rugby Almanac? Yeah, it's a, it's a magazine that New Zealand mad, mad New Zealand rugby followers have. It's a little thing. It was first published in 1935. Because this is an absurd example, I'm taking you back to 1892, right? Because back there, the Rugby Almanac, which didn't exist back then, the Rugby Almanac prophesied that the New Zealand all-black rugby team would reach its pinnacle of power in the beginning of the 21st century and that there was going to be a Rugby World Cup in Japan in... uh, What year? What month? What day? What month? September. September. Of that year, all right. That was the prophecy in this rugby almanac back in 1892. Then it went on to prophesy that they would only win by the appointment of a super coach. A man called Hansen was gone, and then it gave five fingerprints of the super coach. Right now, here they are. You ready? He was born in 1942. He was born in a little town called Wairoa, Hawkes Bay, not Bethlehem. He would marry at the age of 65. Ah, in 1965. <laughs> he would marry in 1965. He would father two boys and one girl. And his first car would be a Triumph 10. You know what? That fits me. <laughs> this is no joke, alright? This fat fits me the prophecy back there and the fingerprints are me I was born in 1942 I got married in 1965 (laughs) I have fathered two boys and one girl what else did I say? yeah and I first bought a standard 10 there's the fingerprints prophesied and there's the fulfilment I'm going to be the super coach which will see the all blacks win what do you think of that? an absurd example but way back in the Old Testament, it prophesied that Christ would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. He would be of the line of David, uh, of the tribe of Judah, and of the line of David. And he would do this, and he would do that. And the fulfilment of those prophecies are the fingerprint evidence for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. If you take all those prophecies, it would absolutely blow you away. But going back to that absurd example, people could argue, well, that's all very well, Max. You were born in 1942, but when you grew up a little bit and read this prophecy in the Rugby Allman, you could have manufactured some of the events that followed to fit the the fingerprint. You could have decided you would marry in 1965, and though girls threw themselves at you, you put them off until you got... Ruth's not very well this today, she's home. And back. <laughs> you know, he put them off and you got married in 1965. But, and you also decided, yeah, I read in the almanac Act they'd have to have a standard 10 as his first car, so I made sure I bought a standard 10. So there is some of that evidence you could manipulate. But I could not have manipulated I would be born in Waira. I could not have manipulated other events and when you to go to the situation of Christ and the predictions that came there people say yeah Jesus read the old testament prophets and he knew that he would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a of a donkey so he got a donkey and got onto the back of a donkey and rode in Jerusalem yeah easy to fulfill those but Jesus couldn't control that he would be born of a virgin that he would be born in Bethlehem he couldn't control that Judas would go... Jesus didn't go to Judas and say, Judas, when are you are going to betray me? I reckon I'm worth 30 pieces of silver, okay? <laughs> Jesus couldn't have predicted those things. And so the fingerprint evidence, when you go through the Word of God, of the prophecies made by Old Testament prophets, time without number, and fulfilled by Christ, are absolutely astronomical. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but if you are going to... Fulfill a prophecy one-on-one, there's a one on chance you'll get there. All right. One-on-two, it gets bigger, and that's when I get stuck, because I don't know how to do that. One-on-three, one-on-four, one-on-five. One-on-eight one predictions. I typed into Google the other day, how do you predict what will happen? And it came back that if you can fulfill eight detailed prophecies and get them right to the very letter, the figure is one followed by 17 zeros. It put it another way. It said if you took a, a bucket load or a truck load or a something load of silver coins and dumped them on the state of Texas to a depth of three feet and painted just one of them and sent someone in there blindfolded to find it, that's about as close as you'll get. But Christ fulfilled at least 68 prophecies of the Old Testament. He is risen indeed. He is alive we have not hitched our wagon to the wrong star. So that is what is declared. Paul then goes on, what is it determined? He says in verses 21 and 23, Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam all die, but so in Christ will all be made alive. I am going to live in heaven with Christ because of the resurrection. I too am looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. Death stalks each of us, and particularly when you get over a certain age, which has got a naught and a 7 in it somewhere, when you get over there and every time you feel a pain, you say, uh-oh, what's that? Where's that? What's this? Is this the start? I am looking forward to the return of Christ. I am looking forward to seeing him in his glory. I am looking back at the cross of Calvary and at the empty tomb. Those two are so linked, intrinsically linked, that I am certain of the fact that I shall one day live with him. I don't know whether you've ever heard of a man called Busalik. Oh my goodness, how do you pronounce that? Nick Busalik, have you ever heard of him? You may have seen him on your television... He's a man with no arms and no legs. Do you remember him? And he's got sort of stubby little limbs here with two toes on one limb. He has been born with there's some doctors here, so I hope I get it right. He's been born with amelia syndrome, which means you don't have any limbs. He is a Christian evangelist. He was born in Melbourne, Australia, in 1982 to Serbian immigrants. According to his autobiography, his mother refused to see him or hold him when the nurse held him in front of her, but she and her husband eventually accepted the condition and understood it as God's plan for their son. He has learned, have you seen the picture, no arms and just... He has learned with those two toes to throw a tennis ball, to play drum pedals, to get a glass of water, to comb his hair, brush his teeth, answer the phone, shave. In particular, he can play golf, he can swim, and he can skydive. During his second, secondary school, he was elected captain of the McGurray State in, in Queensland, and worked with the student council on fundraising, and later founded a non-profit organisation called Life Without Limbs, but he wrote this. I was never crippled, I was never crippled until I lost hope. Believe me, the loss of hope is far worse than the loss of limbs. If there is no empty tomb, we've lost hope. If there is an empty tomb, hope is alive and well. Lastly, I want to talk about what is then destroyed. We read in verses 24 to 28, then the end will come. And when he hands over the kingdom of God to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. The end is coming when Christ shall reign supreme. I love the picture in the New Testament of, of Jesus standing before Pilate. And Pilate makes a charge of Jesus and Pilate says, aren't you going to answer me? And Jesus didn't answer him. And Pilate said, don't you know I've got authority to not only to crucify you, put you to death, And Jesus says, you have no authority over me except it were given you from above. Pilate, do you know you have another appointment with Jesus? Do you know, Pilate, that one day you will stand before him again and Jesus will then do the sentencing, not you? I've written this down as I was sitting down here just a moment ago. The empty tomb is the crucible of hope. The stone rolled away is the full stop of all the schemes of hell the gaping tomb left a gaping vacuum in the theories of those who say there is no resurrection christ is coming back he shall return he is going to christ is going to put aside all authority all power and he shall eventually give all power to the father so that christ so that god may be all and in, in all I tell you as I stand here most sincerely, Christ is coming back. I don't know whether you have ever accepted that the cross of Jesus is where your sin was dealt with. If you have never faced that fact and want to talk about it, I'm going to stay down behind here afterwards. And if you want to talk about on this sunrise morning when Christ rose from the dead and that stone was rolled away and the spices that the ladies brought were just dashed and were useless and worthless... I tell you, if you want to talk about that, please come and talk to me. Christ has dealt with your sin. Christ has dealt with your shame. And it is time you face the reality of not only a cross, but beyond that, the empty tomb. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that that stone rolled away, the clothes folded inside, are not just a lovely story at the end of a ghastly story, but rather adds credibility and validity to the death of the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that the whole plan of redemption was focused on a little hill outside outside Jerusalem and inside a little tomb nearby. And Jesus both died and was risen again. And because he lives, we shall live also. Father, if there are any here today who want to discuss the realities of the resurrection, Father, work in their hearts by your spirit, we pray. We bless you. We worship you. We thank you for your love in Christ's name.